Well, now I would invite you to turn in your Bibles and stand with me as we go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come to a text that may be familiar to many of us. Maybe something we've read several times. Maybe something we've, we've wondered about. Maybe something we've longed for. God, as we come this morning, would you put a deeper longing in our hearts? God, put a burning in our hearts for the coming of this vision, for the fulfillment of this when we, your people, will gather around your throne and sing your praises forever and ever. God, give us ears to hear this morning as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is that time of year again, and some of us may be more excited about it than others, but it is 
football season. All right. Yeah. Packers. Here we go. Um, I have been a Packer fan pretty much my whole life. Love watching football, following football. Um, when we moved to China in 2003, it was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, back then, didn't quite have the technology that we have today. So I had to buy a subscription to be able to listen to the Wisconsin radio station. Uh, and for the noon games, I had to get up at one in the morning uh, to listen live. There was no recording anything back then. So I had to get up at at one o'clock for the noon games. The afternoon games were a little better. I could get up at like 4.30, so that was nice. Uh, but I was very dedicated uh, to, to continuing to follow the Packers. And then we came home for a couple of years. Then we moved back in 2007. But the nice thing in 2007 is that there was this thing called Slingbox, which you guys might have heard of. It was a little device that I could hook up to my parents' TV, and I could actually like sling the signal from their TV through the internet all the way over to my computer in China and I could watch the games. And then uh, I think in the first year, maybe I just had the most generic one. And then it came out with the DVR option so I could record the games and I didn't have to get up as early to watch the games live. But if it was like a one o'clock, 1 a.m. game, I'd be recording it and I would like wake up at 1.30 and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I had to get up and, you know, I had to get up and watch the game. But in all those years, I tried so hard to not figure out, ever figure out any details about the game. I didn't want to know the score because if I knew the ending, right, I didn't want to watch the game. So if I was like recording a game and I had meetings that day that I had to go to, I'd be like, I'd get there and I'd say, nobody tell me about the Packer game, right? I didn't want to find out. And I think that in all those year, years, I don't think I ever had a, a final score ruined. Um, there were a couple of games that got cut off that I didn't get to finish and that was kind of a bummer, but but that anticipation, right, that anticipation of, of what's going to happen and, and waiting for the end of that. Maybe you're not a, a football fan. Maybe, maybe you're a, you like to watch TV shows, like you're the binge watcher, right? And the season has already been ended and all your friends have watched it and they're telling you to watch it. What are you going to say? Like, don't tell me the ending, right? If they tell you what happens at the end, there's no suspense, right? There's no anticipation. So you don't want that to be ruined for you. Well, this, what I'm talking about here, this not wanting to find out the end, not wanting to have it spoiled, it's actually the opposite for us in our Christian lives, right? We want to know the ending. We want to know how things end so that as we're going throughout, like the ending is spoiled, right? Like we know what's coming. We're not in suspense. There's anticipation, but there's not this like, I have no idea what's going to come. We want to know. We want to know the ending. And we have been told how it ends. That's what we have in the book of Revelation. Now, I want to be careful here. Obviously, we might not have all the exact details, and we need to be careful because we shouldn't be like speculating like, well, what do, how does America play in to all of these you know, details about the end times? That's not exactly what I'm talking about. But in a sense, we do know how, where history is going. We do know how it all ends, and we can live with assurance and confidence in this life that all of history is moving in the direction that God has promised it would go. And I've been thinking about this a lot this past week, especially with the news of what's been happening in Afghanistan. As we prayed for the people there, especially for the church, what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 5, this is not just some pie-in-the-sky vision of heaven that doesn't really matter. For these believers who are hunkered down in their homes, who know that the Taliban is coming for them, 
What do you think when, it, when you're standing there and they've got a gun to your head asking you what you believe? Does, does Revelation chapter 5, chapter 4 and 5 here, this vision of heaven, do you think it really matters? Of course it matters. We know what's coming, right? We know what we're going to get. So in those moments when push comes to shove, this really matters. This vision of heaven, this must fill our hearts and our minds in the best of times so that in the worst of times, we may stand strong in the face of whatever hostilities the world throws at us. And John's vision here of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, this is a huge key to both understanding and believing and then living out our lives in such a way that the world around us sees and hears the truth about Jesus, our conquering king. So if you're visiting with us, we have been in a series on the summer, Prophet, Priest, and King. We've had four messages on prophet, four on priest, four on king. We've looked at how, we've looked at two Old Testament passages that point forward to Jesus in each one of those. Then we've looked at a New Testament passage on prophet, priest, and king. And then our fourth message, which will be next week, our final one on king, is how that applies to us, how Jesus as prophet, priest, and king applies to us individually as Christians and as the church corporately. So you might be saying, well, why do you choose Revelation chapter 5 for the message on Jesus as king? And I feel like I can't think of a better place to go to to remind us of all that Jesus has done for us and to remind us of the future hope that we have. We could go to a lot of other places. We preached through Luke's gospel recently. Uh, we saw the promises of Jesus' kingship right from his birth. We could have went and looked at that. Uh, we saw many kingdom themes throughout the gospel of Luke. We could have looked at those. Uh, we, we talked about his death and his resurrection, how he's reigning as our ascended king. We could have talked about all those things. But we're fast forwarding here to John's vision of, of in Revelation of Jesus as our conquering king, because I think this is a reminder that we all need, especially in light of the things that are going on in the world. So I want to briefly highlight a few things from John's vision that gets us up to this point in Revelation chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can probably turn back maybe just one page. I might be different in your Bible, but uh, just turn back to the beginning, Revelation chapter 1. If you want to follow along with me, I'm just going to highlight a couple quick things here. That'll bring us up to speed with, with what's going on in the book of Revelation. It begins uh, with a reminder in verses 1 to 3 that the end is near. John says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Then in verse 3, it says, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's this reminder throughout that the end is near. Okay, All these things that are happening, these are written to churches who are who are people who are struggling and suffering, right? They need a reminder that Jesus is coming soon. The end is near. Then John greets the seven churches in verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So there's this picture here of God seated on his throne. He's reigning as the king. And then verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Okay, this is a really important reminder here is Jesus is ruling as the king on earth. We saw there in our catechism question how Christ executes the office of a king. He subdues people to himself. He rules and defends us and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. 
We see here Christ is ruling and reigning, and he is conquering all the kings of the earth. So whatever is happening in Afghanistan right now, whatever the Taliban are doing, whatever, however they think they're going to take over the world or whatever, Christ is the king. He's reigning over them as they're running their terror and doing all their things. They're not sovereign, right? They're not in control. Christ is the ruler of the kings on, on earth. And we see there in verse 6, he who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he made us a kingdom priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion, their kingly language forever and ever. We're going to see that in verse six, again, in chapter five, that he made us a kingdom and priests to God. Then John goes on in verses nine through 20 to talk about this terrifying vision that he has of the son of man. See in verse 17, that John falls down at his feet as though he is dead. Now there'll be some parallels again with what we see in chapter five falling down. And then chapters two and three are the letters to the seven churches. There's some encouragement here to the churches. There's also uh, some rebuke given to some of the churches. Go all the way to the end of that section. Look at the end of chapter three. Chapter three to the church in Laodicea, the message is to the one who conquers. And that language there, the one who conquers is is given to all seven churches. That's how the, the message to all seven churches ends. The one who conquers. So there's this theme of conquering here. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So after this promise to all the churches, after this reminder of, of those who will conquer and those who, who will sit with him, uh, and reign with him, then we go, John goes into this vision of heaven in chapters four and five. It's this incredible vision of the throne room of heaven. And this is all before things really kind of start to get crazy here in Revelation with dragons and beasts and plagues and all these things. So John is reassuring his original readers and he's reassuring us that God is seated on his throne despite all of the craziness that is going to follow. And we need this reminder. We need a reminder that the world is always going to be chaotic, right? The world around us is always going to be filled with drama and chaos. And we should, if we believe scripture, if we follow what scripture says, we know that things are only going to get more and more crazy as we get closer to the end. So we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be afraid, but we should be confident that our God reigns and that he will accomplish all of his purposes. So chapter four and five, again, go together. We're just looking at chapter five, but chapter four, we're introduced to the 24 elders and to the four living creatures who are worshiping around the throne of God, the father. And then John informs us of a new part of the vision beginning in chapter five. So the way we need to think about this as we're going through this, this is like scenes from a movie. It's basically like a new scene, new scene, new scene, right? This isn't like you're like walking around with your your cell phone and just doing this like constant filming it's like a you're, you're filming and then cut to a new scene cut to it there's there's these new scenes that keep happening so each new scene then builds on the anticipation of the previous scene and as we as we look at this uh, it's not quite as obvious in the english it's, it stands out very obviously in the greek the the first two words at the beginning of each of these sections in verse one in verse 6, which is a new paragraph, and then in verse 11. So verse 1, verse 6, and verse 11, they're all delineated with 
two words in the Greek that say, that are, and then I saw. And then I saw. So in verse 6 and in verse 11, the, the seeing gets pushed a little bit later. But it starts with those same words. So as you're reading it, it's, you kind of get this feeling like John is saying, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And it, so it's very clearly set out there. So those are kind of the three sections, verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 10, and then verses 11 to 14. And I want us to pay attention to John's senses here. He's both seeing and hearing in each section. So there's things that he tells us that he saw. There's things that we see and we read here that he heard. And as we read this, we are also to see and hear. As it said in chapter 3, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this first scene here, we see God seated on his throne with a scroll in his hand. This scroll is sealed with seven seals, which the next several chapters are going to unpack the opening of all those seals. And we're not going to focus today on the scroll and on the seals, but we're going to focus on what takes place here. Verse two, there's a mighty angel who asks this question to all of creation. The question is, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one steps forward because there is no one in all of creation who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And John reacts to this in verse four. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But then John hears a voice. He hears a voice of one of the elders who says to him, weep no more. And I think the translation here in the English is a little bit soft. This, in the original language, it's a very, it's an emphatic command. Some translations say, stop crying, right? Weep no more is like, I think you could say to your kid, like, oh, it's okay, don't cry. Instead of, or you could say, stop crying, right? Like, don't cry, don't weep. This is a very strong, the elders coming to John and say, you have no reason to weep. And why is that? He says then, behold. This word here for behold, it's used 26 times in the book of Revelation. The father says it, the son says it, the elder says it here. John, throughout the letter, says it to those who are reading. Behold, it means to look or to see or to pay attention. Look, he's saying, look at what is here. And what is John to behold here? I think it's interesting because he is, he's actually told about someone, but we're not told that he actually sees him. You can almost picture John looking around frantically. Behold, like, what am I supposed to be looking for? The elder says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But where is he? Right? John is looking around. And I think John's predicament here is not unlike ours. We are told of something that is true and that we claim to believe, but we can't see it, at least not fully. And that is faith, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. We don't always see evidence around us of the victory of God's kingdom as we wait for it to come in full. 
Like John, we are told that Jesus has conquered. The long-awaited king who was promised since Genesis to come from the tribe of Judah and the root of David, whom Isaiah prophesied about, this long-awaited king to come. The one who took on flesh, the one who gave us assurance, who gave assurance to his disciples about the victory of God's kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word overcome is the same word for conquered. Jesus assures his disciples that he has conquered, he has overcome the world. So Christian believer, take heart. Weep no more because Jesus has conquered. We go back now to John's vision and we fade to black after verse five. And then as the curtain is reopened in verse six, John sees something that he probably wasn't anticipating. Right? He's looking around. Where is this lion of the tribe of Judah? Where is this root of David, this conquering king? And what does he see? Instead of this conquering lion king, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And we see this and we're like, well, that's kind of odd, right? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Slain animals don't stand up. Maybe apart from chickens, when you cut off their heads and they still run, like you slit the throat of an animal, it doesn't get up and walk around, right? And that's the imagery here. This word for slain, it means to slaughter, to prepare for sacrifice. Most of the time it meant the throat of the animal being slit. This is very graphic imagery here. This would be a bloody mess on the white wool of this lamb, right? This is not something that we are like having in our children's storybook Bibles. It's very graphic. And not only is this bloody lamb standing, showing that he has conquered sin and death, he starts walking. He starts walking and he walks right up to the one who is seated on his throne and he takes the scroll from his right hand. This is all so counterintuitive. But this is exactly what we get with Jesus, isn't it? As, he, as Jesus hung there on that cross and as he was mocked, by the soldiers, they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In other words, indeed, if you are the promised lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, then show your power, Jesus. Flex your might and conquer your enemies. They were taunting him. And Jesus did, right there on that cross, by not getting down, but instead by offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, and to reconcile us to God as our great high priest and our conquering king. He conquered sin and death. And notice how the counterintuitiveness continues here in Revelation chapter 5. What do the four living creatures and the 24 elders do once they see the lamb take the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne? Verse 8, they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. They fall down before him and they sing a new song. This is the response that is due to a king. The conquering lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain for us. As Paul says in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable 
his ways. And those wonders of our salvation are celebrated in the new song that they sing in verses 9 and 10. Here are these majestic creatures, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, which most commentators think are they're all angels. They're celebrating what Christ has done to ransom a people for God. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll, right? Back to John's vision, he was looking for someone to open the scroll. They say the lamb is worthy because he was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we've talked about this quite a bit. We've talked about this in the past, that this salvation here, when we talk about Jesus being the savior of all the world, it doesn't, we're not talking about a universal salvation that just all people are saved um, without exception, but that Jesus has ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation without exception. He's ransoming people from all, when it says all, it's meaning from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and languages. And then we see in verse 10 that they've been made a kingdom and priests to our God, which we saw in verse one, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a future promise for us. It's not something that we experience in this life. We don't get to reign on the earth as Christians. Jesus himself, he did not even reign as an earthly king during his life. Instead, he suffered as the slain lamb, and that's how he won the victory so that he now reigns as the risen king. Believer, if you are to follow Christ in this life, you can also expect the same thing. It is always the cross before the crown. Our conquering that we experience comes through suffering. It's an upside down kingdom. It's opposite of the way that the world works. Think about the areas of your life that you struggle with, maybe currently or that you've struggled with in the past, whether it's been addictions, difficult relationships, financial struggles, loneliness, hopelessness past, present, or future, these are all realities that we all face in one way, shape, or form on this side of eternity. As I said earlier, this is not, these, these words here, this vision here is not just some pie-in-the-sky vision of heaven. We must let these things inform the way that we suffer and the way that we long for the day when we will join in this incredible worship of God and of the Lamb. And I think this final scene here is a great way to cap it all off. John now looks, starting in verse 11, and he hears the living creatures and the elders. But notice now who is added to the mix. He sees myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is, means this innumerable number of angels. And they said with a loud voice, I want you to pause here for a moment and try to imagine this scene. Think about maybe the loudest concert that you've ever been to. Maybe you've been to a concert that there was literally thousands of other people surrounding you, right? Think about the noise and think about the energy and the excitement that was there. And all of that totally pales in comparison to this scene. Imagine countless angels surrounding God's throne and in a loud voice, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is not only just a 
a concert type celebration. This is a celebration of, like of a victorious king returning from battle, something that we'll never experience in our life. We won't ever witness that type of scene of an earthly army coming back with their king leading them back from battle. But that is exactly what is going on here. Look at this language in verses 12 and 13. These are the types of things that belong to a king. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It belongs to powerful rulers. And these things are addressed to the lamb. The lamb who was slain in weakness, not in power, not in earthly might. He is worthy. And John's, John's tears from chapter 4 When no one was found worthy, they probably had maybe by this point already dried up. But now they're welling up again as he hears these praises being heaped on the lamb because he is worthy to receive these things. And the whole scene here ends in verse 14 with the elders falling down and worshiping because the lamb is worthy. I don't know what kind of reaction you have when you read this passage or when you hear it read, I read this and I'm convicted that my awe of God is so weak. But I'm here to tell you and to remind myself that we don't have to wait until heaven to see and hear and experience these truths. We can read these things and we can individually realize what Jesus has done for us and continues to do for us as our king And we can sing these songs to him and praise him because he is worthy. Like I said at the beginning of our service, this is a foretaste. Every time that we gather here together, it is a foretaste of heaven. If you come here and if you're bored, that's your problem, right? Like, and that's my problem. If I come here, I'm like, oh, it was kind of boring today. Like, it's your own problem. Like, it's not that what we're doing isn't fancy enough or exciting enough. It's because we've lost our awe of God, right? And like, we want something else. We want something more flashy or exciting. What we're doing right here is a foretaste of what heaven is going to be. Okay. And we need to, we need to get ourselves in that mindset as we prepare to worship, right? We're, you know, we're Presbyterians and we do things pretty orderly and we're not running around being crazy. Right. But it doesn't mean we can't sing loudly. It doesn't mean we can't get excited. It doesn't mean we can't clap, whatever. Like let's get excited about worshiping the King and let's remind ourselves that Every time we gather, it's a foretaste of heaven. Okay, enough about that. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Where was I? (laughs) So if we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that this is a struggle, right? We all struggle with this. We all struggle with bringing in the weight of all the things from the week. We might struggle with what's coming up the next week, right? And we're not focused. It's a struggle to believe, as Paul says in Romans 8, 37, that in all these things, which he lists, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Again, think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now. In all these things, we are more than conquerors because we're so strong in ourselves. No! We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are conquerors in Christ. We are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. 
right? We already are more than conquerors because we're in Christ. Now, it doesn't make the suffering that we go through any easier, but we have to orientate ourselves on these things, right? As we're going through these things, we need to remind ourselves of what's true. We are conquerors in Christ. Christ has already conquered, and through him, we have already conquered, even though we're still going to go through the fire here. But it's a struggle, and we have to admit that struggle. And I think that struggle is only magnified by a world that offers so many false hopes and so many false promises to us. I mean, it's just in our face all day long, right? Comfort and ease and and it's, you know, it's not bad to like have nice things and to do things that make our lives more convenient and easy, right? But we have to draw that line between seeking our hope in those things and, and finding our true hope in God. I want to close with a quote from Dennis Johnson in his Revelation commentary. The commentary is called The Triumph of the Lamb. And the beginning of the quote is actually on the cover of your worship guide there. I have just half of it on there. I'll, I'll read that and then I'll... I'll read the second part of it, but here's what he says. He says, the death of awe in our culture has left us with an oddly credulous cynicism. We are cynical, suspicious of established government, education, technology, and medicine, yet our cynicism is the recycled remnant of dashed hopes and broken faith precisely because having lost sight of the God who is worthy, we have invested such trust in these institutions to save our civilization and us. Then he goes on after that. He says, government, education, technology, and medicine have roles to play in society, but none can bear the weight of glory. None are worthy of worship. No human institution or individual has created all things or reconciled rebels, making them God's priests and kings. Therefore, none is worthy of the adoration that belongs to the enthroned one and to the lamb. John would not mislead us into dismissing the threats in this world as illusory, but he points us to a reality more deeply real. The eternal rule of God amid his awesome adoring courtiers in heaven and the authority of the Lamb to carry out on earth the divine plan for the rescue and restoration of creation to its chief end, the glorification and enjoyment of God. Then he ends with the lines from the famous hymn, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for this reminder that we have here. We praise you for this vision of heaven. When we will be gathered together with innumerable angels around your throne worshiping with loud voices, saying, worthy is the lamb. Jesus, we thank you for your death, your life in our place, your death in our place, your resurrection from the dead, your ascension into heaven, and that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, where we spiritually are seated with you because we are raised with Christ. We are more than conquerors. God, help us to believe that and to live that out. 
in this world, no matter what the world throws at us. God, again, we pray for the church in Afghanistan. We pray for the church around the world where she is suffering, where she is facing tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Remind her that she is more than a conqueror through the one who loved her and laid down his life for her. We praise you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.